Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Today's guest is Dr. Deborah Diamond. She is a former Wall Street money manager, regular CNBC commentator, and Johns Hopkins University professor who left a high-profile life to pursue a life of purpose and spirituality. She is the best-selling author of Life After Death, Miraculous Stories of Healing and Transformation in the Extraordinary Lives of People with Newfound Powers, and Diary of a Death Doula, 25 Lessons the Dying Teaches About the Afterlife. Dr. Diamond is also a spiritual teacher and a psychic and a medium. Dr. Diamond, I really appreciate you giving me some of your time today, and thank you for joining me. Thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure. So, Dr. Diamond, what inspired you to leave the successful career in money management to study spiritual experiences? Yeah, it was a great question, Jeff. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I was a money manager on Wall Street for many years and a, and a commentator, regular commentator on CNBC and a professor at Johns Hopkins University. And those were all, um, you know, career goals of mine uh, back then. Those were the things that I wanted to do that I'd been trained for. Um, when I was in the investment business, though, I always kind of knew things, and I didn't know how I knew them. Um, I would pick up a piece of paper, I would pick up an annual report or a prospectus, you know, financial statement, and I would know without reading it if that company was going to be successful, if the investment was going to be successful. And I didn't know how I knew that. But uh, my boss used to say to me, you know, Deborah, you have really good instincts. So I, I just chalked it up to that. I didn't even know what that meant, but I, you know, that's what I figured it was. And I didn't think too much about it because, um, you know, investment business is 24 seven. It's very grueling. It's, and, um, I didn't have time to sit around and philosophize about things. So, uh, it wasn't until 2007, 2008, I took an intuition development class in New York because I thought, you know, I had pretty good intuition. It would be fun to take a class and just tune it up. That was all I wanted to do. I live on the East Coast. I drove up to New York for the weekend. It was a weekend class. And um, we, on Saturday morning, we started to do some exercises and I was getting everything in these exercises. I wasn't too concerned because uh, the exercises were pretty low key. Um, uh, we took a break. And when we came back, the teacher said, um, now we're going to do a seance. And um, I was, I, I, you know, I looked at the, the schedule and, you know, I was thinking this is an intuition development, you know, maybe some, some exercises with cards or something, you know, I, I really didn't want to do a seance. So hold on a second. I have to stand up. So, That's okay. Okay. so, um, I'm going to have to go from sitting to standing, That's but anyway. Quite all right. So, um, thanks. So, um, we, um, you know, I decided, well, it was Saturday morning and the class went through Sunday afternoon and, uh, you know, we'll just do this one exercise to seance, nothing's going to happen. And then we'll go on to the next exercise. So I, um, the teacher said, I'm going to put you in a meditative state and then I'll take you out of the meditation. And if you, see anyone, you let me know. 
And uh, I figured, well, I'm not going to see anyone. You know, that doesn't pertain to me. So we meditated, and then she brought us out of the meditation, and she said, does anyone see anyone? And I looked around the room, and everyone was looking at each other. And I raised my hand, and she said, yes, Deborah, what do you see? And I said, I see about 50 people. These are people who had passed. Mm -hmm. Uh, I saw relatives of mine who had passed. I saw loved ones of the other students in the class. And then I just saw some like random people, like 42nd Street showgirls kind of prancing through the center of the room. Mm -hmm. So the teacher said, if you see someone in the corner of the room, chances are they go with someone sitting in that corner. So I said, I do see someone in the corner. She asked me to describe him. And I said, um, he kind of looked like Tony Orlando. I don't know if you knew who he was, Uh, but he was just, Yeah, he was Hispanic. He had black hair, part in the middle, uh, big white teeth, handlebar mustache. And as I described him, the woman sitting in that corner said, I know who that is. That's my fiance. Mm. He died two years ago. So um, she said, if I show you pictures of him on my cell phone uh, during the break, would you be able to identify him? And I said, yes. So during the break, she came over with her cell phone and she, she said, you know, she kind of paged through it. And I said, there, that's him. And she said, yes, that's my fiance. Now, she had wanted to hear from him. It had been two years she, and uh, she hadn't heard from him. So she was very grateful to me for making this connection. And um, she thanked me and she hugged me. And, you know, I worked on Wall Street, so there are no thank yous on Wall Street, no hugs either. So but I knew that something, you know, I had done something for this person that was meaningful. And that really that really struck home. So I spent the rest of the weekend in the class and now like a portal had been opened, you know, and all kinds of things were happening. And people were coming up to me in the class and saying, you must have been doing this for a long time. And I said, actually, I've never done this before. Mm. So that's what happened to me. That's what kind of kickstarted this. But um, I didn't I didn't talk about what happened. I didn't. Nobody talks about these kinds of experiences because they don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want their family to say that didn't really happen. You're just imagining it. So they keep it to themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, when I drove home uh, Sunday night from this class, I called my youngest son. I have, I have three sons. Uh, my youngest son is very left brain. He scores really high on logic tests. So I called him and I told him what happened in the class and he listened to me. And when I was done, he said, well, that makes sense. We're just energy and the energy has to go somewhere. So when he said that, I was, um, that made sense to me, you know, because it was a cross between science and spirituality and I could understand that. So, and that's really been the foundation for all my work since then, you know, that we are energy, that everything is energy. And that explains NDEs, and that explains spiritually transformative experiences, and that explains the afterlife, and that explains extraordinary experiences, and, you know, everything. So um, that's been like the the guidepost for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I went after that, that summer, I went to Taos, New Mexico to paint. I'm also an artist. Mm-hmm. And I went out there just to paint for two months. I rented a place. And at the end of the two months, when my lease was up, I said, I'm not going back. I didn't know why, but I knew I was supposed to stay there. So I did. And that was where I began to unpack this energy and work with it. I began to uh, do readings and teach workshops. And um, it was very normalized out there. You know, in Taos, when somebody says, what do you do? And you say, I'm a psychic. They say, oh, yeah, me too. Hmm. So 
that doesn't happen everywhere. You know, right. where I live now, that would never happen. You know, uh, I live on the East Coast in Maryland. And if somebody said, what do you do? And I said, I, I'm a psychic. They'd probably take a step back. Mm-hmm. But in, in Taos, you know, you've got a lot of creative people. You've got a lot of artists and writers and musicians. And, and they're very educated and very smart people. They just also happen to be very open. Right. So, you know, you've got people who are like that. So that's where I began to work with the energy Eventually, I came back to the East Coast, and when I came back, I was asked to do a reading for a famous near-death experiencer. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know what near-death experiences were, but I was asked to do a reading for this person, and I had to go to D.C., Washington, to Washington D.C., to do it. And, um, you know, when I was reading for him, he had had, he'd been struck by lightning and had a near-death experience and came back with these unusual gifts. He uh, hears symphonies. And he plays the piano. He can play these symphonies on the piano, which he could not do. For, he couldn't play the piano prior to his NDE. Mm. So um, I just thought the whole thing was very unusual. And uh, that night I came back home and I Googled near-death experience after effects. And I found out there hadn't been any research done. So I said, well, I guess I'll have to do the research. Now, the first 10 years I was on Wall Street, I was a healthcare research analyst. So, so I knew how to do conventional research. Not only that, it was in healthcare. So, um, so I, I, I knew. And uh, so I wrote a book called Life After Near Death, and it's case studies of, of these people who've had these extraordinary, who return from their near-death experiences with these extraordinary abilities, uh, musical abilities, uh, quantum mathematical skills, um, enhanced hearing, enhanced vision, higher IQ, um, musical abilities. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of them, a lot of different um, abilities and gifts. And that topic hadn't been researched. That was in 2013. Um, nobody was talking about near-death experience after effects, but um, now they are. Now they are. So, uh, so you know, when you hear people talk about them, a, a lot of times I feel like they don't really know what they are. But, um uh, you know, we did a lot of work on them. I did um, interviews with, at this point, I've talked to thousands of ND years and have read for, I, I don't even know how many ND years I've read for, but when I read for them, I go with them on their journey. So I experience what they're experiencing. And that was true of all the cases in the book too. Mm-hmm. So um, what happens to them is they come back transformed, unable to go back to their previous life because they come back with their energy altered and uh, they have, you know, let's say for example, that, you know, we all have like, we're all like 98% material body and 2% consciousness. Well, ND years are probably something like 95% physical body and 5% consciousness or 90% physical body and 10% consciousness. They have too much consciousness and it's manifested in these, these alterations, these, new abilities, which are manifestations of energy in many cases. So what happens to them during their NDE appears to be that when they leave their body, they go out to the universal consciousness filling station and get tanked up. Mm -hmm. And then they come back with this extra consciousness. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people have said to me, and you've probably had this experience too, how can I have one of those NDEs? Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I need to fix my life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, and I say, you really don't want one of these, you know, this does not fix your life. This just creates other issues, you know, because it turns people's lives upside down. Mm-hmm. They're no, they're no longer the person they used to be. They quit their jobs. 65 to 75% of them get divorced. Many of them move. Um, 
they become vegetarians, they change their diets, they, they change everything, they change their friends, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that is, it's not an easy thing. So I, it doesn't fix anything. It just creates other issues. Right. Uh, let me backtrack on a couple things here. Very first time when you were in that uh, class and you came out of the meditation of the seance, did you immediately just sit up and see all those people immediately? And, and if so, were you just kind of like freaking out? Like, Hey, where did all these people come out? Am I really seeing this or am I imagining this? How did you, how was that experience for you at that time? Um, yeah, I saw them as soon as I came out of the meditation. Um, I don't generally freak out. I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm an earth sign and I'm pretty grounded. So, you know, it was more sort of like, Oh, there's so-and-so and and the, there's so-and-so there. You know, I mean, I was in an intuition development class. It's not like I was in a French class. Right. You know, I mean, this was conscious, you know, we're doing consciousness. Um, and, uh, you know, and the teacher was saying, does anybody see anyone? So I saw people, you know, but I saw them, you know, if you've ever had a dream and you've seen someone in a dream, it's sort of like that. Like they could be very real, but they're in your dream. They're not there, you know, mm-hmm. they're in some other dimension, but you see them. And that's the way it was with these people. And each one of them was kind of represented doing something that sort of I was important to them in their life. So like I saw, I saw a guy in a football uniform reaching up to catch a pass and then he fell, fell down on the ground. And when I said that somebody in the class got up, at, well, they started crying and then they got up and left. Mm-hmm. So that was obviously somebody that some, that person knew. Wow. Um, the, the person that I saw uh, in the corner of the room, mm-hmm. the Hispanic guy, I only saw him from the neck up. He, was, mm-hmm. he had a big smile on his face, but I only saw him from the neck up. His um, fiance said he had been in an accident. He worked in a mail room and he'd been in an accident with um, a machine that put a knife in his neck. Mm-hmm. That's how he died. So that's probably why I saw him from the neck up. You, you see, we get psychics and mediums get things in symbols. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in addition to, you know, anything that you can use to help identify that person they use. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of, you know, how it was that, you know, I saw various people doing various things. Um, there was someone else in the class who told me that they saw two children uh, dressed in Halloween costumes, little children um, playing together mm-hmm. Um and he described the children and they were children of somebody I knew who, who these children had died in a house fire and on Halloween and their brother and sister. So, uh, you know, so, it, you know, they're in Halloween costumes. He saw them in Halloween costumes and he saw them together, mm-hmm. you know, so it, this is kind of how the, the information is presented. So I, I didn't, I didn't freak out. I, Later, I freaked out. I mean, because I couldn't figure it all out. Things, so many things were happening that weekend that I couldn't piece it all together. And the teacher didn't offer anything. You know, it was sort of like, okay, thanks for coming to the class. Bye. So, so I was just kind of left with that. Um, and I was, I was intrigued, but I was also afraid. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't know which was more, you know, if I was more intrigued or more afraid. Yeah. So um, that's, that's kind of how it went. Do you have to get in a meditative state now to see um, spirits or is it happening all the time? And you're like, Hey, go away. I don't want to see people now. No, it's um, it, it's doesn't happen all the time. I turn it on and off okay. like a, like radio dot, you know, your radio in your car, you know, mm-hmm. you don't want to listen to that station anymore. Well, mm-hmm. I don't even change the station. I just 
turn it off. So when I'm doing a reading, I turn it on. I'm seamless. So I turn it on and it's there. And then when I'm done, I turn it off. As a matter of fact, you know, when readings are over, um, you know, you're talking to the person after the reading and then they say, you know, I meant to ask you, you know, at the beginning of the reading, you saw Uncle Al Mm -hmm. and like, did he did he say anything about this? And it's like, it's done. You know, the door is closed. Right. You know, it's not like a book where I could say, let me go back to page 11 and I'll look up, you know, it's over. It's sort of like trying to go back in a dream. You know, somebody Mm -hmm. said you said you had a dream. Mm -hmm. You know, I I dreamt about this last night and somebody says, well, did they also talk about this? It's like that that was an instant in time. You had that dream and that was the information that you had and Mm -hmm. that's it. Let's get the two terms um, accurately stated here. What's the difference between being a psychic and a medium? Okay, good question. So a psychic brings in information that has to do that pertains to our lives here on earth. So in in other words, your health, your um, career, your relationships, your family, your um, career path, you know, your life path, Mm -hmm. um, money, things like that, you know, things that involve all of us, you know, in life, you know, you wonder, like, should I change my job? Should I move? Like, should I be in this relationship? You know, so those are, those are the questions that you would come to a psychic about. Um, Mediums connect with those in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. These are two different things, psychics Mm -hmm. and mediums. So um, all mediums are psychics, but not all psychics are mediums because mediums have to go much higher to make that connection. You know, think of me as like a radio antenna or TV Mm -hmm. antenna, Mm -hmm. you know, that goes way up and um, I can connect, I can go pretty high so I can connect with those in the afterlife. Um, But I can also connect at the psychic level. Um, But not all psychics, you know, for a lot of psychics, they can tell you about, you know, your relationship, but, don't ask them, you know, to connect with your grandparents. They wouldn't have any clue. They don't go high enough. Right. So um, that's, that's, there's a difference. All right. To me, being a psychic or a medium, it's almost like you can be someone's therapist. So when you get mm-hmm. bad news, how do you break it to them? Or do you not break it to them at all? Psychics are not supposed to tell people bad news. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and mediums don't, there's no, you wouldn't tell any, but there's nothing to tell that's bad. The person's mm-hmm. on the other side and you're talking to them. But mm-hmm. psychics are not supposed to tell people bad news, but many of them do. You see, there are a lot of psychics out there now. That more and more people are like becoming psychics. But uh, what that means in some cases is they read a book and then they call themselves a psychic and they go out and start doing readings. So they haven't really had any training. But uh, Many people do tell people, you know, you're going to die. I had a client come to me once a number of years ago who said, I just have one question. Am I going to die when I'm 82? Hmm. She was already 80, I think. And I said, why? And she said, well, a psychic told me 10 years ago I was going to die when I was 82. So you're not supposed to do that as a psychic. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, that's not what we do. Um, so I don't, I don't see bad news. I mean, I ask not to be shown anything bad. And so I don't see it. And um, the, the purpose of, of readings is really spiritual development. It's not fortune telling. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I think for some people, they view it as fortune telling, you know, um, but that's not really what it's about. It's supposed to be to help you develop spiritually. And I have so many people who tell me, uh, you know, I've, I've read for them and then they tell me I get an email from them a year later or sometime in the future and they say, you changed my life. 
you know, and I, I don't know exactly what I did, mm-hmm. but, but I guess I did something. So, um, so that's really, you know, at its best, how this is supposed to work. We're not supposed to be going around just, you know, telling people bad things. I, I don't believe in that. And, and it's kind of a rule in, you know, in the business that you don't do that. Hmm. So although in- some people are afraid to readings because they're afraid they're going to hear something bad, yeah. you know, especially someone who's never had a reading before, you know, they're like, Oh my God, I don't know if I want to have a reading. Cause what if I hear something bad? Well, you know, if you go to somebody good and, and who's a professional who's been around, you're not, you're not going to get that. Right. Uh, let me transition here. So you have your first book, um, which is life after death, miraculous stories of healing and transformation in the extraordinary lives of people with newfound powers. Can you give us one of the most, or maybe some of the most miraculous stories, at least examples of them that really kind of shaked you to your core or really inspired you or something that just, wow, you just thought about that for long, you know, for months and months about that story. Yeah. Well, you know, all, all the people who've had NDEs, all people who have them come back transformed in some Mm -hmm. way. Not everybody has an extraordinary gift or ability, but everybody comes back transformed. So in, in the book, in my book, Life After Near Death, um, there's a story of a man, uh, Robert Barr, who he was a um, cop, a police officer in uh, South Central L.A. And he used to be in the, um, uh, in the riot squad, which meant that he would like beat people and gas people. That's mm. what he did. Wow. He's not a nice guy. Yeah. Um, so he, um, had a son in Arizona and he went to visit his son for a week. Uh, and he had a very nice visit with him. And then his son took him to the airport. And once they got to the Phoenix airport, uh, Robert said he didn't feel well, Mm -hmm. but he, he thanked his son for a nice week. And he went into the airport. He said he John Wayne through the airport and he got on the plane and he dropped dead. He had a heart attack. And luckily there were some EMTs on the plane and they revived him. But when he was dead and he was out of his body, he saw his life, you know, he had a life review and he saw people talking about him behind his back. Uh, He saw his wife having an affair with his friend. He saw, you know, all the bad things he had done. Mm. And uh, he came back. Uh, from his NDE, and he said, I only want to do good in the world. Mm. And so today he lives in Oregon, and he, I think, was like citizen of the year, like model citizen of the year in his community. And he, he he's like a grant writer for all these humanitarian causes and whatnot. But anyway, he has, um, before his NDE, his vision was 2090. Mm-hmm. And he was on a show on the Discovery Channel after his NDE, and they, you know, want to vet everybody. So he had a physical and a vision test, and he uh, the vision test he had twenty ten vision, better than perfect vision. Mm. So you know, from the NDE, he had his vision went from twenty ninety to twenty ten, per, you know, better than perfect, and it's still going strong. This has been a number of years. Mm. So um, and plus, his life has completely changed. So. Um, I think that's a, a really interesting story. Um, there's a couple stories in the book about, about, um, about li- in the book, Life After Near Death, about people who became musicians, people who did not have any previous musical ability, um, 
who had NDEs. And one is a quite famous uh, musician who's put out hundreds of CDs and has, you know, thousands of concerts. This person never picked up an instrument. You know, uh, they had their NDE and the day after their NDE, they, they sold everything they owned and went out and bought all this electronic musical equipment, which they didn't even know how to operate. Yeah. So they're, they're well known. Um, There's another person in the book who was a um, documentary producer uh, and she was filming a documentary abroad and um, was in her room, I think in her hotel and had her NDE and she left her body and she went into this chapel where they were filming and um, she was thinking about, I remember she said she was thinking about like lying down in the chapel because she thought it would be so peaceful, but then she thought everyone would look at her. She didn't realize that she was out of body. And then she went back to her room and she looked down on the bed and she saw this body in the bed and she had no association with it. It could have been a chair, mm. you know, or a rug, um, but it was her. And she um, eventually, you know, was back in her body. Um, now she went back, home after this and um she wasn't sure what to do with herself career-wise after that and she went to visit a friend and her her friend had a harp and her friend would go to work every day so when her friend went to work she would take this harp and she would start to play it she didn't know how to play a harp but she would start to play it and she said there was something about that harp it was the same vibration as the nde Mm. she just connected with it So um, she went home after visiting her friend and she said, you know, there's something about that heart, but let me just see, let me give it a couple weeks and see if I still feel this way. And if I do, I will buy a heart. So she waited a couple weeks and she still said, I need, I need a heart. And, but she didn't have any money. Mm -hmm. So then she got a phone call from some production company that said, did you get the check? Mm. And she's like, what check? And, uh, they said, oh, well, we sent your check, but we owe you another X amount of money, which was like the exact same amount of money that she needed to buy a harp. Mm. So she bought the harp and um, she had this harp and she said it sat in the living room She and she looked at it because she didn't know what to do with it. And every day she would Google harp, you know, and hope that she would find an answer. And then one day she saw harp thanatology on Google, which is playing the harp bedside at, at the um, – at hospice or, you know, with the actively dying. And she said, that's, that's it. That's what I want to do. So, um, but she had to take lessons and she didn't have any money. So she found somebody who could teach her, but she didn't have the money for the lessons. And then she got a tax refund. Mm. There was the exact same amount of money as the lessons. And she said, I'd never gotten a tax refund my whole life, you know, and here she got this tax refund. And so, um, so she started, you know, taking the lessons and uh, she ended up being a harp thanatologist. And, the, you know, the thing is, the other person, the other musician who had the NDE, I remember that person telling me also, um, every time they needed money, you know, they need a certain amount of money for something. It would show up in the same way, like, you know, some some surprising payment for the exact amount of money that this person needed would like appear. So it's, um, you know, it's all very fascinating. You know, it seems like very intentional on the part of the universe, you know, to make these things happen. But there are many stories in the book. There's a guy who uh, was a scientist in uh, Mexico. He was uh, the CEO of a not-for-profit, and he came down with dengue fever. 
and uh, um, I think malaria as well. Mm -hmm. And he was airlifted to a CDC hospital in the United States. And his wife said to the doctors there, what's the prognosis? And they said, we don't know. We've never seen this before. So he lived, but he came back as a shamanic artist. So he, when he goes to sleep at night, he sees all these visions, uh, you know, sort of primitive shamanic art. And when he gets up in the morning, he goes right down to his basement and he starts making this stuff. And he said to me, you have to understand, I'm not an artist. I'm a scientist, mm -hmm. you know, but evidently the universe had another idea for him. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these people are fascinating and they're, um, they're all credible, you know, these, these are professional people, you know, who are credible. These things really happen to them. And, you know, because you've interviewed, you know, a lot of NDEers, these are real people, you know, with, and these things have happened. I mean, millions and millions and millions of people have had NDEs all around the world. It doesn't discriminate by country, by race, by religion, by sex, mm -hmm. by age. It, you know, it can happen to anybody. Mm -hmm. Can you speculate on what percentage of the population don't even report them? I, I don't know because we don't have good data. You know, we don't know how many um, distressing NDEs there are. You know, they, they say, you know, maybe like 2% are distressing, but you know, there are so many people that have these that a don't report them and B don't even know that that's what they had. Mm -hmm. They don't know that that's what they had, you know, because they just either cause they don't know or because the, definition of an NDE is a little murky. You know, for some people, they watched a, a movie on TV or, uh, you know, and they think that's an NDE, like you have a life review and you went through a tunnel and saw a light, that's an NDE. For other people, uh, I mean, many of the people I've talked to have said to me, they have like, like um, guilt or shame because they say, I didn't have all the after effects. Mm -hmm. So I must not have had an NDE, mm. you know, or I didn't have all the um, elements of the NDE. I didn't, I didn't see a, I didn't go through a tunnel or I didn't have a life review. So I guess my NDE wasn't valid. Mm. Well, that's not true. You know, the definition of an NDE is if you're, you know, unable to return to your previous life, that is the definition. If you're transformed, unable to return to your previous life, it's not whether you went through the tunnel or saw the light. That's the stuff that's very lurid. That's the stuff that TV likes, you know, in movies, they love that because it's dramatic and, you know, mm -hmm. you could make a big scene in heaven and, mm -hmm. you know, with all these colors and everything and, but in rainbows, but that's not necessary to have an NDE. That's not necessary. It's great for dramatics, mm -hmm. but it, in real life, that's not necessary. I mean, there are lots of people who've had NDEs and didn't have any of the elements, you know, so, um, Veterans for, you know, instance, soldiers, there are lots of soldiers who've had NDEs, but they call it in the military, they call it uh, something else. They call it PTSD or, you know, because uh, I don't think the military will treat you if you say you have a NDE. If you say you have PTSD, they'll treat you. But, um, you know, they've had these experiences as well. And it's just, you know, in the in the military, they're not talking about NDEs, you know, so it's... Um, the topic is still more work needs to be done. You know, Raymond Moody was the one who coined the term near death experience in 1975. And everyone has since then used that term, but um, it's, 
you know, in terms of what the experience actually is and what it involves, I think more, more research needs to be done. Yes, I agree. All right. In your second book, Diary of a Death Doula, you talk about 25 lessons that the dying can teach us. Can you give us one of the most important lessons from your book? Well, the, yeah, I think the most, there's so many lessons there, but um, I, I guess I would circle back to a comment that I made earlier about the near-death experiencers being out of body and tanking up at the universal consciousness filling station. So there's a lesson in that for, for uh, the dying. You see, NDEers leave their body once, you know, and th- but they come back to life, whereas with terminal actual physical death, you don't come back, but you do journey at end of life. You're out of body and you journey, you travel, you may visit your new home in Mm -hmm. this other dimension. You may see your loved ones in spirit and Mm -hmm. you may visit, you may revisit memories from your childhood. Uh, Every time you're out of body at uh, when you're actively dying and it's often you're, you're, you go out of body and then you return. You go out of body and you return. But every time you go out of body, you pick up a little more consciousness. Mm-hmm. Your physical body is declining each time, but you pick up a little more consciousness mm-hmm. until at the you know an actual physical terminal death, it seems as if your consciousness is fully bloomed and your physical body is you know no more. So um, I find that to be just, I don't even know how to describe what I think of that because I I don't think I would have understood that if I hadn't done work on near-death experiences previously um, to know that people are coming back with, you know, this enhanced consciousness and then sitting with the dying and knowing that they are traveling and journeying at end of life and coming back with a little more consciousness each time. You know, that's really, you know, points to the uh, the the issue that we are more than body we are body and soul and uh you know you don't die until your body's ready and your soul's ready it's not just body and it's not just soul it's body and soul so um you know at end of life your your soul your consciousness is just blossoming and that's you know how people arrive in the afterlife mm-hmm. they continue it's that it's their essence. It's their energy. They don't have the physical body, but other than that, they're the same. They have their memories and their personality and all that. It's just no physical body. But um, that's, I think, the most profound lesson, you know, because here in the Western world, we tend to think of death as, okay, no more physical body. That's it for you, you know? And, and I think that's because of Western medicine, largely. I think, you know, up until a few hundred years ago, people, Well, even the ancient Egyptians believed, you know, that it was one continuum, that you went from life to the afterlife. It was just one long continuum. And even a few hundred years ago, people were dying at home surrounded by their loved ones. It was part of life. Mm -hmm. But then things changed with the advent of Western medicine. People got whisked away to hospitals and to hospices and, you know, these very antiseptic clinical places that scared people. Mm -hmm. You know, that's when I think people changed their view of death. It was Mm -hmm. like, I don't you know, I'm not going there. And doctors are primarily concerned with the physical body. I mean, we've taken the soul away from death. We've removed it. Mm-hmm. You know, now doctors, you know, will try everything valiantly to keep a patient going. And it all has to do with the body. You know, they'll give them this medicine, they'll revive them and things like that. 
So it's all to do with the physical body. It doesn't address the soul. And the soul is so much a part of what happens. Mm-hmm. It's the part that endures. Right. I agree. I've heard that some people that are terminal in a room, when they're dying in their room, people will come or they'll have their life experience right then and there in their room. And not only are they experiencing that, but sometimes someone else who's with them in the room will experience that too. Has that ever happened to you? Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I'm a medium as well as a doula and not all doulas are mediums, but I am. So uh, that means that I can see the invisible world, not all the time, but you know, in, in the room of the dying, sometimes the, the curtain, the veil is very thin. So, you know, you're able to see more things. And um, yes, I mean, I, I often see the loved ones in spirit in these rooms. You know, they, they are consistently in these rooms. They come in. To, um, the patient knows that they're there. They provide comfort and support. Um, and um, in terms of the shared death experiences where they're, you know, they're seeing something and I'm also seeing it. I mean, occasionally, yes, I, I, that happens. Um and it does happen to other people. You know, these are called shared death experiences where they're experiencing what the dying are experiencing. And, I, you know, I do believe it's just because, well, first of all, the, the people in the room are open and um, the veil is thin in those rooms. So the and the energy is heightened. So that, I think, is what you can attribute some of this to. All right. Um, let me move on to something else here. You said that you're also a psychic and you can you know see things for people maybe what they're going to do in their life or you know for help them make decisions about does this guy like me or whatever but do you have predictions about things that matter for all of us like general predictions like especially being in money do you have general predictions of the economy or general predictions of the world state of affairs or you know is there anything popping up for you that we can see or that you foresee for 2021, especially things that you can that kind of keep popping up for you over and over again? Right. Yeah. Good question. So the answer is yes. And, um, you know, 2020 was uh, 2020 and 2021 are bridges to the future. Mm. Um, you know, we had a, a big reset in 2020, you know, things that were sort of in transition all kind of, uh, happened very quickly. You know, the, the, um, fact that we moved into a virtual world, you know, practically overnight. Um, and that's, that's the way we're headed in general. I mean, this is just the beginning uh, because in 2020 people were sort of forced into this, but now there are going to be new technologies and new companies developed that, you know, will be providing us with all sorts of services and products uh, that um, kind of provide more um, structure, you know, to this uh, digital world. Um, time in 2020 has been elusive. You know, there's this saying, everything feels like Wednesday now. Mm. Um, and it's because we don't have any structure in our lives anymore that anchors us. You know, we're not getting in our car at seven o'clock in the morning to go drive to an office building to see people there, you know, at lunchtime going out and, you know, going to a restaurant with people. I mean, those were markers, those are all markers, you know, that tell you it's, you know, morning, it's lunch, it's dinner, it's evening, it's, you know, it's a weekend, it's a work week. That's all been removed. So um, we're now, uh, you know, we've transitioned into this virtual world. And if anything, it's going to become more so. 
Um, so we're living sort of, we're, we're sort of like the NDEers, you know, they live with one foot on earth and one foot in the universe. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of doing the same thing. Part of us is like still going through, you know, we still go to the grocery store, uh, and go get gas, but part of us is out in this virtual world now. And that's, it's going to become more and more and more of that. Um, we're going to not be using money in the future. It won't be in 2021, but it's coming soon. We're going to um, a cyber economy, you know, and cryptocurrency. Um, there are certain uh, sectors that are going to do very well uh, now. Um, anything uh, technology oriented, um, anything to do with space, um, space travel, um, and the environment, those are all going to do very well. And healthcare, healthcare is going to do well. I mean, you know, you saw how quickly this vaccine was developed. I mean, there, things are coming together in the healthcare world that um, discoveries and advances are going to be, you know, made more rapidly than they have in the past. So there, there are many things happening right now um, that are just being set up and put in place for this future that's coming that's not going to look at all like what the past looked like mm -hmm. so you know everything is up for grabs and just kind of fasten your seatbelt and be ready to be flexible it's interesting that you mention about uh, digital currency because recently i was at starbucks and i saw i can't remember exactly what the sign said but it said something like if you're gonna give us change please have your exact change because we cannot give you change. And there was said something like a shortage on coins. And I've also noticed like a lot of places, I think they've kind of changed now, but a lot of the grocery stores, they say this line is for card only. If not, all lines are for cards only. So I'm wondering if that's kind of like we're already getting prepared to go to a, a digital currency only. Well, it, you know, it's like everything else that was COVID related. I mean, um, you know, the idea was we don't, you know, cash may be dirty. It may transmit COVID. Mm -hmm. So we'll just do credit cards. Um, you know, we can't meet in person because of COVID. So we'll just do Zoom. I mean, there are all these things that were attributed to COVID, mm -hmm. but they were not really about COVID. They were about moving our society and our civilization along. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, I think that, uh, um, currency, you know, uh, cash and coins and all of that, you know, you just started to see it in 2020 where it's not being taken as much and it's not, you know, banks are going to disappear too. Banks mm -hmm. are going to disappear. So it's, it's funny. Like I noticed uh, where I live, um, a lot of the retailers, you know, have gone out of business and who, who took their places? Um, local branch branches of banks, you know, and I'm thinking <laughs> They have like the absolute worst timing in the world because like who's going to lo your local branch of a bank anymore? You either go to your ATM or, you know, you do everything online. You know, these brick and mortar um, structures, you don't need them. So um, that's going to create some issues, you know, with commercial real estate. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's um, change is ha happening very rapidly and uh, it's it's exciting and it's sort of like, do you read science fiction? I mean, it's sort of like these science fiction books or movies, you know, except that it's like happening now. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. Do you think the change is brought about by something within the spiritual world, spiritual ethos? Or do you think that there's some other body of people or extraterrestrials or whatever that's creating this change for us? 
Um, I So I know a little bit about astrology, just mm-hmm. enough to be dangerous. So I know that um, there are certain conjunctions that have happened that happened in uh, 2020 um, and are going to happen. There's a big one coming at the end of December uh, in a few weeks and that will be happening for, you know, the foreseeable future conjunctions in astrology that haven't happened for hundreds and hundreds of years. So for example, all the astrologers were talking about this big conjunction at the beginning of 2020 that hadn't happened in, I think, 600 years. So I went, I Googled like, you know, what happened in history 600 years ago? I mean, there was no United States, but what happened in European history and what came up was the black death. And I looked at it and I thought, that's not it. That's too extreme. Well, that was exactly it. That was exactly it. So um, now there's a, there's a conjunction coming, I think, in 2021 uh, that is related to – it hasn't happened, I think, in 400 years. And uh, I Googled that, you know, what happened on those dates in history, and it was when uh, Columbus set sail for America, the New World. So, I mean, I, I, I do believe in this stuff, you know, I mean, uh, there are patterns in history, you know, so um, I think some of these things are destiny, but, you know, Mark Twain had, had said, um, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. Mm. So, you know, we didn't have the Black Death, but we had COVID, mm. you know, Columbus set sail for the new world, well, our new world may be in outer space, right? You know, or maybe it's just um, a new world here on earth, but there's a new world coming, Mm -hmm. you know, so we already have our shovel in the ground. It's already started. So um, I, you know, I do believe that astrology plays a role. um, And, uh, you know, I, other than that, I can't speculate. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the great reset earlier. What is that all about? So, um, Well, originally I thought, you know, I wrote some pieces at the beginning of 2020 calling this the Great Reset, Um, you know, everything that was happening. And I felt that it was because mankind and humanity was sort of on the wrong track. You know, we had opportunities to change and fix things and correct things, and we weren't. So it was sort of like, if you don't correct it yourself, the universe is going to step in and take care of it for you. So that was originally what I thought of as the Great Reset. But um, since then, the IMF and the World Monetary Fund have, have said that they are meeting in 2021 over what they call the Great Reset. And that has to do with um, the adoption of cryptocurrency, among other things. And it has to do with the fact that there's too much debt in the world. And it's unsustainable. And it, that system is not going to work anymore. So mm-hmm. there's, there's going to be a whole new program. And uh, people will be given cryptocurrency and uh, with digital wallets to go with them, which means that you can track everything that that person does. Mm -hmm. So it's, this is not at all like we have no reference point for any of this. You know, this isn't like anything anybody's ever experienced. Mm -hmm. So it's going to take some getting used to, but it's not going to happen immediately. It's going to over time. Yeah. If it all goes to digital currency and a digital wallet, you know, a lot of, illegal business deals are going to come to an end unless they go to bartering. Well, it's hard to barter cryptocurrency because right. cryptocurrency cracked, right. you know, there won't be any cash. So, yeah, I mean, you, you could do barter, I suppose, you know, you could say, I'll give you my car if you give me your, you know, 
whatever, you know, right. it could be that kind of bar, which is interesting because it's sort of like what's happening now. Um, you know, we've made this giant leap ahead into a future world at the same time that we've gone 50 years back into um, the lifestyle of the 50s, you know, where people are eating dinner together and mm-hmm. taking neighborhood walks, and, you know, with their kids on their bikes and playing Scrabble and, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. I mean, that's... <laughs> We've gone backwards and forwards at the same time, you know, so it could be that we have a barter system at the same time that we have cyber currency, you know. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about the commercial real estate market, and I can understand that going down since people are working for home. Do you have any predictions for the residential real estate market? Well, I think um, people will continue to move uh, like, you know, what we've seen moving out of the cities. They want, you know, it's this trend of, you know, working from home. Well, if you're working from home, you don't want to live in a 200 square foot apartment, you know, in New York, you could pay the same amount of money and go live out in New Mexico, mm-hmm. you know, in a house, you know, on five acres. So um, I think people will continue to do that. I mean, there's a trend now of people moving to red and blue states, according to their political affiliation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that will continue. Um, I think, uh, you know, the idea of living in the suburbs or out out um, will continue to be popular because taxes in the cities are going to go up and services will go down. And, you know, the things that we liked about cities, a lot of them, a lot of that's not going to exist anymore. You know, if you think about all the office buildings in New York, all the people living and uh, working in those office buildings, I mean, they'd all go out at lunchtime to their favorite place down the block, right? So now they're not in the office buildings and those places are all dying. Yeah. You know, a lot of those places just um, uh, exist for the lunch trade. So, um, you know, and there are lots of not-for-profits and museums and whatnot that are having difficulty. So, I mean, cities are going to be changing mm-hmm. and people are, I believe, continue, you know, will continue to leave, you know, for more open space. Are you still involved with finance or money management in any capacity? Um, I don't manage money, but, you know, I have to say that once you're in that business, it sort of becomes part of your DNA. It's in your blood. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I continue to, um, you know, uh, read everything and, and, you know, get from that perspective, I'm, I'm writing my, uh, a new book now on investing, Mm -hmm. uh, using your intuition and which I think is, um, really important. You know, you can use your intuition, not only in investing, you can combine it with anything, you know, whatever fields you're in, Mm -hmm. you should pay attention to your intuition because it's, it's providing you with clarity and it's providing you with the right direction to go. It will never fail you. It's the clearest form, you know, in the purest form of communication. And, you know, you could pay for a therapist and you could read a lot of books and, you know, you could, research and everything and ask your friends, but your intuition is always going to give you the right answer. So I don't care if you're in medicine or you're in investing or you're, you know, what you do, um, you can use your intuition. But in my case, because I have a background in investing and I use my intuition in investing, I'm writing a book about that. Hmm. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I was thinking about, you know, if you're into the stock market, you know, as far as I've heard, it's basically legalized gambling and you're just taking a guess. So it makes a lot of sense that maybe trusting your own intuition on choosing stocks or what to sell or buy may be better than just doing the research. Well, you know, uh, some of the very best investors admit that they use their intuition. I mean, George Soros says that every time he's looking at an investment and his back starts to hurt, he knows that's a sign. That's mm. his sign. 
So, um, you know, the thing is on Wall Street is that you've got like the group think mentality and they're all doing the same thing at the same time. So it's hard to, you know, so they all have the same returns. Mm -hmm. Most of them don't even beat the market. So it's, it's hard to, uh, you know, there's a space there to, um, to uh, do better than that. You know, you have a secret weapon to enable you to do better than that. So um, I, I think uh, using your intuition is it's free. It's accessible. All you have to do is start to pay attention to it um, and learn to accept the messages. And I talk about that in the book and their exercises and, you know, for people who are neophytes in investing, you know, there's exercises for explaining that as well. Oh, that's great. So besides this book that you're working on, do you have any other projects that you're working on that you want us to know about? Oh, thank you for asking. Um, I do have a YouTube channel like you do. Mm -hmm. And, um, and on that channel, I, I teach and I, uh, you know, speak about various topics. So um, people are welcome to subscribe to that, you know, for um, uh, new content that comes out, you know, all the time it's updated. Um, and I, I have a newsletter uh, that I also use to teach people about various topics. Um, and uh, people seem to really enjoy that. And, you know, sort of subscribe to my newsletter. You can go on my website, DebraDiamondAuthor.com, and um, you can subscribe. And, and then, of course, I do readings, psychic and mediumship readings, and also medical intuitive readings. So, you know, those are, that's sort of a basket of the things that I do. And I do, I do a lot of speaking. Deborah, before we wrap it up here, do you have one last message you'd like to leave with the audience? Um. Well, we were just talking about intuition, and it's a topic that comes up, and a lot of people ask me about it. They don't know how to use it. They don't know exactly what it is. And, you know, I would say everybody has it. Not everybody uses it, but everybody has it. And, um, and if you just learn to accept those messages, those feelings that you have, or that feeling that you know something, but you don't know how you know it, um, accept it. And each time you accept these messages – your intuition will get a little stronger. Your intuition is like a muscle. And the more you exercise it, the stronger it'll get. And um, this is something that is um, our greatest ally in life. So, you know, you already possess it and uh, you can work with it. It's free. And um, don't be discouraged if, you know, if, if it takes a little time, it is exactly like going to the gym and working, you know, working out your muscles there. You know, you go to the gym and you're doing these exercises and you check and you're like, this is doing nothing. And then six months later, it's like, wow, there's a muscle there. Mm -hmm. So it works just like that. You know, you have to keep practicing. Mm -hmm. People think that psychics and mediums just like have this ability. It just appeared and you just instantly know everything perfectly. And the truth is, we're trained. The good ones are trained. So, um, you know, I've trained at the Arthur Finley College in the UK. I've trained at lots of places. Uh, so you have to, it's like learning to play an instrument. You know, you practice, you train, you teach your, you know. So the same thing with intuition. You know, give it some time, work on it, be patient, and you'll see the results. Mm, that's great. And I guess we'll have to have you back when you have your new book out, because I think that we can learn more about training this intuition. Yeah, thank you so much. That would be fun. I'd love that. All right, Deborah, thank you so much for giving me some of your time today. I really appreciate it, and I wish you the best. Thanks, Jeff. It was a pleasure, and you take care. Stay safe and well. You too. Bye-bye.